to Kansas Memory, a Kansas State Historical Society podcast featuring glimpses of Kansas history from documents in the Library and Archives collections. In January 1865, Samuel Johnson Crawford, a heroic and popular Civil War commander, became the third governor of the state of Kansas. During his administration, the population of the new state swelled rapidly. That and the building of the railroads farther west led to increasing conflicts between whites and the southern Cheyenne, Sioux, Comanche, and other Plains Indian tribes. In 1868, the U.S. Army, Department of Missouri, headed by General Phil Sheridan, embarked on a winter campaign on the frontier to quell the Indian raids. Governor Crawford requested permission to recruit the 19th Kansas Volunteer Cavalry to join General Sheridan's troops on their campaign through what is now southwest Kansas and Oklahoma. At the last minute, he decided to resign from office on November 4, 1868, to become Colonel of the Kansas Regiment. The regiment, slowed by the severe weather, arrived too late to participate in the only real battle of the campaign, when Custer's troops attacked the Cheyenne village of Chief Black Kettle on the Washita River on November 27, 1868. Chief Black Kettle and approximately 40 Cheyenne died in the battle. The attack was controversial because although it forced the Cheyenne to accept reservation life, Black Kettle's band was not considered dangerous. These passages are taken from a history of the 19th Kansas written by George B. Jennis, the commander of Company F, based on his diary. The next evening, after the arrival of Colonel Crawford and his detachment, General Custer arrived in camp and reported having had a severe engagement with the Indians some 60 miles south of this point. He had started from Camp Supply a week previous on this scout and had been fortunate enough to strike the trail of a large party of Cheyennes and leaving his wagons had followed them until his scouts reported their village on the Cimarron. Making his preparations quickly in the morning after following the trail all night, he dashed in on their camp with his entire command. The Indians were surprised, but rallying at the call of their chief, they succeeded with overpowering numbers in beating the troops back and compelling them to withdraw to a safe distance. A portion of Custer's command, a detachment of 17 men under Major J.H. Elliott, was cut off, surrounded by the Indians, and every man of them killed. Among the killed in the first charge also was Captain Hamilton and a lieutenant wounded. Custer's men killed a large number of the Indian warriors and a number of squaws. Old Black Kettle, the head chief of the Cheyennes, was among the killed on the Indian side. During the attack on the Black Kettle's camp, a Mrs. Blinn and her infant, who had been some months in captivity, were killed by the ferocious savage to prevent their recapture. Mrs. Blinn was tomahawked and the child was killed by dashing his brains out against a tree. This beautiful and estimable lady was the daughter of Mr. W.H. Harrington of Ottawa, Kansas, and her younger sister, Mrs. C.H. Estabrook, wife of a prominent druggist, still resides in that city. A party of men consisting of Colonel Crawford and some officers from the 19th and 7th, with an escort of men, revisited the site of the battle on December 9th. 
On the hillside at the north were the carcasses of between four and five hundred ponies captured from the Indians and killed by Custer's order. In the timber by the river were the ashes and remains of the Indian wigwams burned by Custer's men. And at this point, Black Kettle was killed. Here were the bodies of five or six squaws and that of Mrs. Blinn and her child lying some rods apart. Mrs. Blinn's body was clothed in an old blanket with one undergarment of buckskin, while on her feet were a pair of lady stockings, the only article of civilized attire, and a pair of moccasins. On the south side of the creek and some distance below this spot, we found the body of Major Elliot surrounded by the bodies of the 17 men killed with him, all stripped naked and all but that of Elliot horribly mutilated. Elliot's right hand only was cut off. The ground was covered with cartridge shells showing that they had made a desperate fight and been overcome only when they had used up all their ammunition. The bodies were all frozen and after burying the remains of the soldiers, the bodies of Major Elliot and Mrs. Blinn were put in an ambulance and taken back to camp with us. They were subsequently taken to Fort Cobb and interned. The cavalry was approached by a party of Indian chiefs carrying a flag of truce two days later. Jenis relates how many of the soldiers wanted revenge at this point and were not happy that General Sheridan agreed to a truce with the Indians, provided they immediately surrendered all their arms and ponies and returned to their respective reservations. The chiefs that met with Sheridan included Satanta of the Kiowas, Kettlebelly of the Apaches, and Lone Wolf and Timber Mountain of the Comanches. General Sheridan held the most prominent chiefs prisoner and threatened to hang them if the Indian bands didn't surrender on his terms. The chiefs council voted for peace and a peace commission led by General Hazen arrived on December 22nd. General Hazen brought eggnog and had a party for the officers on Christmas Day. The cavalry spent the month of January in camp at Medicine Bluff near present-day Lawton, Oklahoma, trading with the Indian women, winterizing their shelters as much as possible, and hunting in the mountains. They killed hundreds of wild turkeys and several bear. The soldiers loved hunting so much that an order had to be issued to stop the useless waste of ammunition. Among a party of squaws who visited our camp on the 28th of January was a white woman who said that she was the wife of Chief Claver and that she had been among the Indians 13 years having been captured when only 12 years old. Upon questioning, she said that she had no desire to leave the Indians and her two children. She said that her parents had been killed and she did not know that she had a relative in the world. While in this camp, some men discovered a den of rattlesnakes in the caves under Medicine Bluff and the whole regiment turned out to kill snakes. Over 300 were killed during the afternoon, the largest being 10 and 12 feet in length measuring 12 and 15 inches around the body. Dr. Bailey, regimental surgeon, got the skin of one of the largest and preserved it. In January, there was a rumor that the war was over and a peace accord had been reached with all but two Indian bands. Colonel Crawford headed back to Topeka to help during the transition to the new governor, and Captain Jenis accompanied him. The pair traveled 500 miles on horseback in 19 days. In late February, the cavalry received word that the two remaining hostile bands still had two white women, Mrs. Morgan and Miss White, who had been captured in the Republican Valley in Kansas in October. General Sheridan had made their release a condition of the peace agreement. 
The hostile bands were about 150 miles west of Medicine Bluff. The troops set out in pursuit, the 19th Cavalry on foot and the 7th riding the surviving horses. They were hampered by heavy rains. On March 6, they split up in order to approach a camp of Cheyennes that their scouts had reported from different directions. On March 9th, they crossed into Texas and camped on the middle prong of the Red River. Once again, food and fuel was scarce, and the troops ate their mules and then burned their wagons to prevent the Indians from getting them. On March 15th, they were able to catch up with the Cheyennes. Custer demanded they return the white women and agreed to release his Indian prisoners if they did. Again, the Indians equivocated and delayed and returned to their village to hold council while the troops went into camp. All of the 16th was spent in negotiations which resulted in nothing and in the morning, 17th, the Indian village was gone. They had retreated during the night. Once more the command was on foot and pushed on rapidly on the Indian trail. Moving down Lake Creek about 12 miles, they again came into view of the Indian village and when several chiefs came out with their flag, Custer made prisoners of them sending on back to camp to tell them that unless Mrs. Morgan were at once given up, he would hang the chiefs instantly. At three o'clock, the white women were brought out and presented a sorrowful picture indeed, as their history and the account of their captivity has been fully written, it is unnecessary to repeat it here. The campaign now being ended, there was nothing to do but march for Camp Supply, which point the command reached on the 28th after 12 days of hard marching. The 19th Kansas was mustered out at Fort Hayes on the 18th day of April, 1869. After that, Samuel Crawford moved first to Emporia, then to Pica, where he had a successful law practice. His daughter Florence was married to the 20th Governor of Kansas, Arthur Capper. His son, George Marshall Crawford, was a prominent newspaper man and a publisher of the Topeka Capitol. General Custer and his wife Elizabeth were stationed with the cavalry at Fort Riley from 1866 to 1871. After 1871, he was stationed for a short time in Kentucky before returning west to the Dakotas in 1873. On June 25, 1876, he died at the Battle of the Little Bighorn at the age of 36. The Kiowa Chief Satanta was held responsible for Kiowa raids in 1874 and imprisoned in Huntsville, Texas, where he killed himself by jumping from a window in 1878. Lone Wolf was sent to prison in Florida in 1875, where he caught malaria. He died near Fort Sill, Oklahoma, in 1879, shortly after his release. Of the two captives, 18-year-old Sarah White fared better after the rescue. Her father had been killed, but she returned to Cloud County to live with her mother and sisters and soon married a Civil War veteran, H.C. Brooks. She lived to be 88 years old. Anna Brewster Morgan's return to her family in Delphos, Kansas was difficult. She had only married James Morgan a month before the kidnapping, and after she returned she bore a half-Indian baby who did not survive infancy. She ended up living with her brother Daniel, and James divorced her in 1880. She was committed to the Topeka State Hospital in 1901 and died there a year later. This has been a Kansas Memory, a Kansas Historical Society podcast. The documents used in this podcast are from Kansas Memory, a virtual repository of primary sources from our collections. The URL for this website is www.kansasmemory.org.
Thank you.